Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 2, Episode 19 of People's Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. Pea Soupers, greetings. How are you? Hope you've had a good week. This week our episode is called Lauren May, The Experience of Caring for People with Dementia. People's Soup is a podcast that takes evidence-based psychology and behavioural science with the aim of making it accessible, fun and useful for people in the workplace and beyond. This is based upon a foundation of contextual behavioural science and other complementary psychological approaches. We aim to make our content interesting for humans. Whether you're curious about psychology in the workplace, a psychologist, a therapist, a practitioner, or anyone really who has an interest in the workplace and how it could be improved. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, A first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. I believe behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients and utensils. Welcome to People Soup. Now, I consider People Soup to be an audio magazine, and sometimes we have longer articles exploring a particular issue. This week, I spoke to a fellow organisational psychologist and talented researcher, Lauren May, who brings to life her exploration of the lived experience of people in the workplace who are also caring for loved ones with dementia. So, let's leave news and reviews for a future episode and dive right in, P-Supers. Hey, P-Supers, here I am with our guest, our first guest of the year, in fact. Really? Yeah. Lauren May, welcome to People Soup. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. I'm delighted you're, you're here. Now, regular P-Supers will be familiar with my research department and how they look into each of our guests. So I have my research notes here on you, Lauren. It says, um, you've just finished your MSc in Organisational Psychology at City Uni. Yeah. Got that right. Okay. It says you're a bit of a podcast guru here. You've had your own podcast. I don't know whether it's for one or two seasons. Yes. I did have a podcast, a joint podcast. Yes. Loves a Beach. Loves a Beach. And it was related, if I understand correctly, to the programme Love, Love Island. Island. Yeah. I, I forgot the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to confess, I wasn't a regular listener, Lauren. I did listen to one episode. That's okay. Which I found quite amusing and interesting because I didn't know the characters. It was kind of... Yeah, difficult. But I love it the way you were linking everything that happened on that Love Island to psychological theory. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And I know from our conversations that you're also thinking about other ideas for podcasts, but Mm. I don't think I'm going to share these here. Confidential. Commercial and confidence. Yeah. I don't want anyone else to nick that. So um, what else do I have in my notes? It says... You're a woman who gets shit done. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I consider you to be. We're working together on some other stuff. You really drive things forward. Sounds like a a combination of a Tinder bio (laughs) and a a LinkedIn first Uh, line, doesn't it? Oh my God, there's a top tip. I expect (laughs) to see that on everyone's LinkedIn profile. Lauren, I get shit done. Yeah. I've also got style icon and influencer. Oh, I mean... I'm not quite sure where you got that from, but I'll take it. Take it. I yeah. take it. Um, I've, got, I've got an edgy fringe, but apart from that... Edgy fringe, we must make sure we get a photo of. It's actually a revenge fringe. Oh, yeah. it's got a name. <laughs> no, no, it's not a name. It's it's a... 
<laughs> I had a boyfriend ages ago who wanted me to get a fringe for a year. Right. Uh, the whole year we were together and I never did because it's very high maintenance. And then when we broke up the day after I went and got one done, mm. it was a bit of a, you know, sassy move. Sassy. Yeah. But now, I mean, I, I don't know who's got the last laugh because it's like five years later and it's still here. <laughs> I have to watch it every bloody day. <laughs> So it's a high, it's, it sounds like quite a high maintenance revenge fringe. Yeah. But I like that. I thought that was a thing that I hadn't heard of, but it is a thing. But... Yeah, it's for me. Right. And you have key skills. I've got some key skills here. An in-depth knowledge of ambient desserts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was once named the dessert princess. Oh. Mm. Not the queen. That was my boss. Yeah. Life goals. And you have some expertise in line dancing, it says here. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Experience rather than expertise, I would say. Okay. So you wouldn't run a class in it? I wouldn't run a class. I'd join a class, though. Okay. I'd join in. Okay. And some late news just in. I hope I'm all right to mention this, but I understand you got a prize from the Association for Business Psychology for a piece of research you did for your master's. Yeah. And that's actually why we're here. We're here to talk about that piece of research and for you to share a bit about that with us. But congratulations. What Thank was the you. What was the title of the prize? Um... I don't actually know what the title was, but it was something like Academic Excellence or something. Mm, it's quite nice, nice, isn't it? Yeah. Also, do we, do we want to explain the research that you found or just like the dessert thing? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we're, we're going to come on to that a bit okay. about your career history. Fine, because I just wanted to point out that I don't just sit around eating cakes. That's not why <laughs> I have experience in that aisle. <laughs> yeah. She's not just generally found in aisle seven, just... Yeah, the stuffing custard down yeah. my face. No, no, it's, it's, it's more... It's not who I am. So let, let's come on to that. Like, okay, no, no, great. No. So my research department did okay, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We some little nuggets some, there. Dug up some right nuggets, yeah. So, so Lauren, tell us a bit about your, your career. What's what's got you to this this moment in your in your world? Um, so I did psychology at university. Mm-hmm. Um, always really loved psychology. I then decided to go into marketing. That was a combination of just sheer ignorance um, <laughs> combined with the love of madmen. Ah. Yeah, I thought marketing was pitching up creative ideas on a snazzy kind of flip chart to mm. a client and then being like, it's a deal and shaking hands and exchanging millions of pounds. Why? Did John Hamm play any influence in this career? Yeah. Choice? I can um, understand that, frankly. Yeah. Um, but I went into marketing because... I love understanding human behaviour mm. and marketing is understanding consumer behaviour. So it still kind of made sense from my psychological background. I then joined the Nestle graduate scheme mm. and my first role was on carnation, condensed milk, oh. which is why I have a knowledge of ambient desserts. Love ambient, by the way, means non-refrigerated. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Don't ever say we're not a learning podcast piece but <laughs> It's the aisle that you may find yourself lost in in the supermarket that's full of tinned fruit, bird's custard, angel oh, delight. Angel delight. Would it have um, a rice pudding in it? Absolutely. I actually launched and then delaunched. Delaunched? <laughs> launched and delisted a rice pudding product. My God. I know. It was an exciting ride. <laughs> I also, in one day, sampled 18 banoffee pies. These are career goals, people. Mm. Yeah. So did some marketing for Carnation for two years, which was really, really loved it. Then did marketing, moved to Perina, which is also Nestle, but their pet food division. Oh. And then did marketing for uh, Baker's Dog Food. Oh. 
and I launched a small dog, uh, small dry dog food <laughs> in the UK. What is that for if I'm a small dry dog? Uh, no, it's a small dog that wants dry food. Oh, okay. Yeah, not wet food. Understood. I do not. I'm so just we have like dry cat, wet cat, dry dog, dry <laughs> wet dog teams. Yeah. Oh, imagine if that was your title. I am on the wet dog team. <laughs> Honestly, there were. Um, so yeah, so I went from being like dessert princess to queen of the small dogs. Nice. I then, after a few years... Went to a startup, a pet food startup, and stayed there for a few years. Mm. And still in marketing. And then had a bit of reflection and thought, actually, I think now is the time for me to go back to psychology. I was looking at the future and thinking, unsure if I want to stay in marketing. Mm. I really love it, but I miss psychology and the bigger purpose for me was missing in terms mm. of kind of helping people. So I then decided to do a master's in organisational psychology, which I've just finished at City. Big Op City, yeah. Yeah, City University, which is where I met you. Yeah. And I've now started a job as a behavioural associate consultant at a company called Daggerwing. Mm. And they basically help organisations who are going through big changes. Using... Psychology, uh, evidence-based Yeah, using evidence-based psychology um, plus kind of experience as well, mm. um, consulting experience. Lots of frameworks and models. I've gone, gone from psychology to marketing back to psychology again. But it feels like psychology was always there. It was always there. Even when you're talking about Angel Delight. Yeah, it it's a... always there. Mm. And, lo- and uh, Love Island, life. Exactly, and that's why when I was doing my dissertation, I had a lot of free time, and me and, me and a friend decided to do a uh, podcast on the psychology of Love Island. Mm. So looking at the behaviour of all of the Love Islanders and trying to decipher and explain it using psychology. Great. Yeah, great. loved it. And as I said, you, we've got, you've got ideas for future podcasts. We which... have, yeah you've shared and they're quite exciting so Mm. when that comes to fruition I'll be announcing it here and hopefully getting you back in for some sort of launch type yeah the P-Supers can have a listen yeah fantastic okay so thank you for giving us a bit of background about your your career I love it I love it it's really interesting and I think it makes you rounded and more considered Coming back to psychology, I say that I'm slightly biased because I did the same. <laughs> I just had a longer period. Yeah. But um, good for you. And you mentioned that word purpose. Yes. As well, which is from my perspective, being a specialising in act, mm. it's that purpose. You, you had that itch that you kept scratching. If I can use a rather inelegant metaphor, but you wanted to move towards something, and wet dogs weren't doing it for you. Exactly. I do love dogs, but yeah, there was a bigger purpose out there for me. Let's come on to your research. Now, let me try and summarise it in a rather cack-handed way and then you tell us what it was about. So my understanding, Lauren, is it's about the experience of carers who are caring for loved ones with uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. But I should probably hand over to you now. Just just tell us a bit more about about what you were studying and why, maybe why you chose to study this. Sure. The title is... Okay, I'll give you the, the short title and the long title. Perfect. Because the long title isn't that catchy. It's probably more academic, I yeah. imagine. But yeah. I obviously, you know, with my marketing background, wanted a catchy bit in there. Yeah. So a juggling act, short yeah. version, long version, 
colon on the end, <laughs> um, exploring the lived experience of working whilst caring for a family member with dementia through interpretive phenomenological analysis. That's easy for you to say, young lady. Yes. I've had to take a few breaths during that. Yeah, yeah great stuff. And so this is, this is for our P-supers out there. This is qualitative research. So yes. this, is, this is where we don't use numbers. The, the data is the words from interviewees, if I've got that right. Yeah, so I really wanted to do qual. So we call it qual and quant yes. in the field, don't we? We is that do. Okay to use? Yes, please. Yeah. So, so, so quals. We're always talking about words and interviews. Yeah. And quants is people filling Numbers. in questionnaires. Yeah. So I really wanted to do qual research because it really appeals to me because you're exploring an experience, and I just find that really, really fascinating and interesting. Mm as opposed to giving people a questionnaire and getting them to tick if they're stressed or not, etc. Mm, yeah. Um, I feel like that's quite a binary way of looking at something. And the ex- I wanted to do something on the experience of working whilst going through something difficult yeah. to understand how an employee copes with that. Mm. Um, and I thought, actually, exploring that in a qual way is really interesting because you get to explore it from holistically mm. so really deep dive into their experience mm. rather than getting them to answer a questionnaire and my mum works for dementia carers count which is a charity who help dementia carers so the link was there really mm. i thought i want to do something about someone going through a hard time at work i want to explore it with qual research and actually people caring for a family member with dementia mm. is obviously quite a tricky time for them mm. So I thought it'd be really interesting uh, to explore that in research. Mm. Plus, dementia's it's appeared a few times in the news recently. Um, it's a bit of a kind of hot topic, but it's a growing problem, and dementia doesn't have a cure. Yeah, and, and I think I think demographically, yeah, we're going to have more and more older people who are living longer. Exactly, and we're more likely to perhaps, unfortunately, experience dementia. So actually, it's a bit of a ticking time bomb. Mm. So I thought it's actually a really prominent issue. Mm. Explore. We've I've spoken about this before on the podcast about leaders and organisations really reflecting on the whole person in the workplace, not just mm-hmm. considering them as a machine that comes to work and does a job. Mm. Because obviously, if you're doing something like caring for someone with dementia, mm. that's an enormous drain on your emotional, physical, Everything. mental resources. Organisations need to wake up to this and the potential impact that can have on people in the workplace, and be be considerate and show some mm. compassion. I'm, I'm taking over. Tell me more, please. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's not... It's a complex situation. Mm. And I don't think there's... Oh, organisations should be doing more of this or employees should be doing more of this. It's an area that needs further research. That's what really drew me to it. Right. So should I explain what dementia is? Yes, please. Yeah. It's basically an umbrella term mm. and it describes a range of terminal conditions which affect the brain. Mm. In particular, the ability to think, remember and reason. Right. So it's, a, it's not one thing, it's an umbrella term and there's no cure. And it's actually, I've got some facts here, it's predicted because of our ageing society that over 2 million people will have it by 2051. It's now the leading cause of death, and one person develops it in the UK every three minutes. Yeah, it's... it's. I, that's not very good for a podcast, but I'm doing a very shocked and stunned face here yeah. at P-Supers, because I, I wasn't aware of that data. Mm. That, is, that is stunning. You, talk, you called it a ticking time bomb earlier. It is, but yeah. Blimey, there's the data. 
And then there are, at the moment in the UK, 700,000 people acting as primary unpaid carers. So that's wow. a lot. Um, a lot of these are family members and a lot of these are in full-time employment. So it's predicted that by 2030, um, dementia caring obligations will cost companies about £3 billion. And that's because of people having to go off work, mm. um, presenteeism, which is when you're in work but you're really stressed out. Yeah. Um, and also people having to leave work early and not being able to return because of the unflexible nature of some organisations. Right. The other thing is I think a lot of carers, um, because they're caring for parents, are older so mm. in the workplace, they're actually really valuable employees because they're in their prime years, forties mm. and fifties, where they've got a lot of experience. So it's not like your staplers who are maybe <laughs> quite young, who yeah. you can maybe replace really easily. Yeah. Um, these are really valuable people to organisations to lose. And I guess they, they similarly could be quite senior. Exactly. Yeah. And if we're talking succession planning, there might not be that many people who could backfill. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, having to care for a family member can obviously make people really, really stressed and that can manifest physically and make them physically mm. unwell. And lots of models have kind of highlighted factors which may increase or decrease the amount of stress mm. um, a working carer experiences. So, for example, if they feel really supported, they may be less stressed. But as I mentioned before, it's a really, really complex area. Mm. So I thought... Let's investigate this and interview some people. Wow. As Paul Flaxman would say, show me the data. Ooh, Paul Flaxman gets a mention. Yeah. Yeah, show me, show me the data. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I did seven about hour-long semi-structured interviews mm. with seven women and had to kind of transcribe all of the interviews. And then what I did was look for common themes mm. amongst all of them. So that was as Johnny, Johnny Line, who Johnny I think you've had on before. He has indeed. He's, I remember, he's my pod pal, in fact. Yeah. I remember talking to him when I was doing this, looking for themes, and he says, it's like wading through mud. Mm. And that's exactly how it felt at times. Yeah. But I've come out the other side. I got on that lily pad. Nice. I sailed through, and I'm out of the pond. Nice one. Um, the findings were, so in terms of kind of themes... There were three main themes that I found and then some sub-themes within those. So the main themes were, the first one was dementia's arrival. So this was kind of what you would expect really, just that when they found out their family member was diagnosed with dementia, and this, by the way, could be a mum or dad or husband in some cases. Okay. So when it kind of, when they got the diagnosis, yeah. basically, it really sparked quite an emotional roller coaster for mm. them. And they experienced fear, and there was a lot of things that were very unknown. So they know it's a terminal condition, but actually how to cope with it, you get the diagnosis and then you're sent home. Mm. So it's kind of like, oh God, what do I do now? Um, feeling quite isolated and alone because a lot of them were going through this as a couple and they didn't know anyone else who had dementia. Mm. That was really difficult because you're, I guess, back to the social identity theory and stuff like that. You're, you're in a new group now and there's no one else in the group. So that was really hard. Yeah. So that was quite scary um, and also frustrating. The next theme was called recalibrating work. So the experience of working whilst caring became harder because obviously you only have a certain amount of resources. And I don't know about you, but even just getting up and going to work and coming home and going to bed, 
I find that a bit too much sometimes. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> let alone, I find I find commuting quite a drain on exactly. my resources. Yeah, let alone throwing in a social life, a love life, catching that, up with Love Island. It's <laughs> exactly. a lot, you know. Yeah. So it's almost like a cannonball kind of coming in and just wiping out a lot of their resources. Mm. So their time, their energy, and often money as well, because they'd have to pay for, either pay for carers or take time off work to care for their loved ones. Right. So it was described as very soul-destroying, actually, mm. which was really, really quite sad and incredibly difficult and frightening as well. Um, so, yeah, the experience of working whilst caring became really quite difficult. Um, they were very, very tired. But actually, the meaning of work for these people kind of took on a life of its own. So for many people, work was described as a sanctuary. Mm. So I've got a little quote here. When I was, I've, this, I've used fake names to of course, um, yeah. maintain confidentiality. When I was there, I was Alicia at work. When I was there, my team's boss, and, you know, I was helping them with their problems. And I used to leave my stuff at the door, my problems at the door. When I came in there, it was like showtime, and it did help me. So actually, right. for a lot of people, coming to work was really important to them because it enabled them to maintain a part of their identity where they were competent, confident, working often towards their one of their values or mm. purposes, and helping helping people. Whereas they come home and they mm. couldn't help their mum or dad or husband. Yeah. So it was like closing closing the door on the stress and strain and grief and coming to work and adding lots of value and feeling important and and competent. So getting getting some meaning from that. Exactly. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, so work became a bit of a sanctuary Mm. for for a lot of people. And participants often expressed a genuine love and enjoyment of their job because it was the antithesis of what they were experiencing at home. Mm. Some other things came up as well. So this was a really interesting one um, as a sub-theme. The super employee and carer concepts. So, some participants felt under either actual or self-induced pressure to be seen as a super employee. So, this is a strong, independent, uh, not woman, a strong, independent woman, (laughs) a strong, independent and productive employee who's kind of immune to any adversity being experienced in their personal life and performing at levels equivalent to those prior to becoming a carer. Actually, I've got another quote here. So I, I feel that for me, I probably put myself under a lot, of, a lot of pressure to sort of prove that actually having caring responsibilities, needing to take extra time off, having the compressed hours doesn't affect the, my ability to do my job. The comments around if I don't maintain X activity level that they would review my working hours, I think that's probably exacerbated my need to be seen as a sort of super employee. Mm. So basically... People felt that they need, you know, I think what came out of this is in our, it's not even in people's workplaces, I think in our culture, Mm. because we're an individualist culture rather than collectivist culture, we value um, traits such as, um, you know, independence and, you know, get on with it and Mm. I don't need any help, I can do it all. So actually coming into work and saying um, people also believe that being a carer in work was associated with being weak and vulnerable. So, for example, a few quotes, I'm not a victim at work. I don't want to be perceived as unreliable or distracted. Mm. So, basically, work was a a safe place for people and a sanctuary. And actually, 
people were worried that being seen as a carer in the work was in direct opposition to this super employee concept who can do everything and doesn't need help and isn't weak and isn't crying and isn't upset. And that was really interesting to explore because it actually came out in all of the interviews in some way or another, yeah. And actually strength was associated with being emotionally closed. Gosh. And even in, in one interview strength and masculinity were synonymous so another quote my boss said to me he said alicia you've got more balls than any of the men in here oh gosh <laughs> oh so all of this that's why it was i found this research so interesting because it's for me it's not just about caring for someone with dementia mm. it's exploring what does being a good employee actually mean in our culture mm. and for a lot of people being a good employee means being quite masculine and getting on with it and yeah. not asking for help and not opening up in the workplace mm. and leaving their shit at the door. Gosh, yeah. And what I said earlier is about appreciating the whole person at mm-hmm. work and understanding what's going on in a private life. But if you're leaving it at the door and you, you think you have to show you've got balls by just cracking on with stuff and being sort of impenetrable to... Yeah, it's like a super a superhero. Crikey. And then, so the next theme kind of ties it all together in a kind of an ending but it represents the way in which participants navigated the workplace so often they would keep their carer um, tied to a secret and that was either because they didn't want to talk about it at work work was where they came to perform Mm -hmm. or because they were worried that by telling people they were a carer that that would in some way influence their concept in the workplace and they'd be seen as weak and unreliable Mm One of my participants never told her boss and then had an early retirement. So a lot of people kept things a secret. But for the majority who stayed working, mm. the demands became too much and they eventually had to tell their employer. But they often focus on their practical needs rather than their mm. emotional ones. So, for example, one quote, I'm going to have to tell you this to her boss because I'm going to need some time, you know, to go to appointments. But don't worry, it won't affect my work. Oh, so gosh, can you see yeah. that's how she told her boss it's not it's not you know i'm i'm having a really tough time at home it's i need to go to an, a doctor's appointment it will not affect my performance this is so fascinating because it's almost like a lot of us have this internalized story about work is that i just keep going mm-hmm. i have big balls i can get through anything i just got to keep going it's yeah. almost like when you see these these snippets in the newspaper and magazines going the top qualities of a real achiever is you have to get up at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. and do some yoga. Meditate and have then inject some water. Sleep in an oxygen tent mm. and then all sorts of nonsense. And yeah. it's just creating these, these stories that we just keep going. Exactly. And if they did need or want to open up emotionally, they did these in um, safe spaces, I like to call them. Mm. So this was either when they were completely on their own. You know, we've all been, well, I don't know if all of us have, but I've certainly cried in the work toilets before. Um, <laughs> have you? I can confirm, yes, I yeah, have. Exactly. I've also felt very angry in work toilets before. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, one participant had a local vicar who came in for mm. religious people, but people would really disclose things to this vicar because they weren't linked to their boss. Right. Um, they also felt safe being emotionally vulnerable in front of either friends at work. You know, mm-hmm. you have those rare relationships at work where they're yeah. actually a friend, yeah. not just a work colleague. Yeah. And also people in the same situation as them. Mm. So if there were carer groups or one participant described as her boss had this, had um, the same experience as her, so her father had dementia, so she felt safe mm. opening up to her boss then 
but otherwise actually opening up to their boss about their caring responsibilities mm. was the last thing people wanted to do either because they wanted to shut the door on all that shit when mm. they were at work yeah. or because they were actually afraid because they were essentially showing vulnerability in a place of performance um, wow that 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 word the vulnerability word is for me, is a really key, quite big thing coming up in workplaces. That if we have yeah. leaders who are prepared to model vulnerability and not that perfection of I just carry on and get shit done, yeah, and be vulnerable and say, this, on. this is a really tough time in my life." Yeah, as a, as a leader, I work with said recently, she she joined an organisation and she came in and she talked about difficult times in her life mm-hmm. and said, "Sometimes we have to be really mindful of the stuff that's going on outside of work." Sometimes we realise that sometimes it's okay to turn up and do work that is good, good enough, enough, but maybe not gold-plated and all whistles and bells. Yeah, and I agree with that to an extent, because yeah. interestingly, I'd like to do a follow-on dissertation. I always think, you know, Twilight, the films, the vampire films. Yeah, I'm not familiar, but um, But you know the concept. Yes, yes. So the vampires live forever. Yeah. And I just wish I was a vampire so I could just do... PhD after dissertation after MSc and wow. just take all these topics and just dissect them. So you've got a real thirst for research, Lauren. Not May. research, I'd say learning. Discovery, Discovery learning. Le- yeah. Is it is it the is it the qual research that you really love? I think so. Because it's pulling it all apart because I'd love to do a secondary dissertation follow-on that looks at Employees experience basically the same dissertation, but really focusing on work identities. Mm. Because I've got a theory that for people who have a really strong work identity, Mm. who have been in the company, like one of my participants have been in her company for 18 years. Yeah. So she's obviously really well established there and Mm. respected. Or for someone who has been doing the same job in different companies for 20 years, Mm. if they get fired, it's not going to be difficult for them to get another job. Mm. in their field they're well established for people with very new work identities Mm. so this could either be a new graduate Mm -hmm. or someone like myself who's just gone from marketing into organizational psychology Mm. I think for those people it would be a lot more difficult to disclose vulnerabilities in the workplace practical or emotional because you haven't got that back burner of experience and Mm. gained respect and I guess even if you have got this longevity of career or several years in one organisation or, or built a reputation, from my perspective, there could still be that unhelpful thoughts going, Definitely. oh, this is a crunch point and yeah. what you've reached now is it's all going to go pear And I guess you've got more to lose if you're yeah. at the top. But if you're at the, the bottom, I think the risks are higher. Because, for example, right. losing your job when it's your first job in the field... Yeah you're probably, you know, you're not going to get a salary. And especially mm. for someone ca- with caring obligations, yeah, that's yeah. a real intangible risk there. Whereas someone who's been in, in the company for 18 years, who's really well established, probably knows they're not going to get fired. Mm. I'd love to explore the impact mm. of your work identity on your behaviour in the workplace as an employee. Mm. Because I think um, there's a difference between my generation and yours and how we look at work, exactly. frankly. And, and you mentioned Johnny, the difference between how I look at work and how he looks at work, I yeah. think. It'd be fascinating to explore that. In fact, maybe I'll get both of you on and we discuss that. That would be great. You know, there's, there's mixed motivations involved. So actually, the lady who had been in her organisation for 18 years still didn't want to disclose her caring things, not because of her mm. worry about being vulnerable, 
but actually because she wanted to escape it. Right. So there's a lot of different drives going on here for people. Mm. And actually, one of my key kind of takeaways is adopt a flexible approach because I think now people are opening up a bit more to people are people Mm. and you sometimes can't leave your stuff at the door. Um, We're not robots. Yeah. You need to, you know, be vulnerable in the workplace and be your whole self. But actually, from this research, I would actually reject that strong an approach. Mm. I think leave your shit at the door versus bring your whole self to work. They're both very polar opposite and they're both very extreme. Mm. And actually, each person is different. And to force someone to open up about what's going on for them at home at the wrong time could actually be really detrimental to their well-being. Agreed, agreed. So what I'm getting from you and your this brilliant piece of research is that it's a really individual thing. But I guess... From my perspective, what, what thinking about organisations, we need them to be willing to have the conversations. We yeah. need them to perhaps understand things about dementia yes. and other things that people are caring for loved ones. Exactly. It's so, not just dementia. I mean, dementia is those that data was shocking, but people need to know about that and feel yeah. comfortable speaking to their people, their colleagues, whether it, whether you're a colleague or whether you're a leader. Yeah. You need to be prepared to have those difficult conversations, but also respecting the responses. Now, Lauren, normally I ask my guests, what's their takeaway? It strikes me this is a slightly different scenario we've got here. So I wonder if your takeaway could be your recommendations for organisations and, mm. and leaders in how to approach this issue. Would that, would that work for you? So this, yeah. this could be your takeaway. Okay, so there are a few really. So um, one is education about dementia. Um, as you said, I don't think many people understand what it is or how difficult mm. it is. So that can help reduce stigma and fears about disclosing that they're a carer, Mm. um, which enables people to access support more easily in the workplace. Um, The second one is implement flexible working policies. Um, This has shown to really help people juggle the demands of working and caring. Mm -hmm. Um, And in themselves, they've shown to improve satisfaction and performance of employees. But they need to be implemented well. So there's a key difference here. So I think flexible working policies are great, but for example, one participant explained she was at, had flexible working, took a flex day, and then said was expected to come in for a meeting. But actually, she she didn't have care for that day. So then that puts her in a really difficult position. Mm-hmm. So have flexible working, but implement it properly. And and. Sometimes I think it's just using your common sense in organisations and showing and going back to compassion. Compassion is going to be a theme of mine for 2019 in my work I do with organisations. But sometimes it's just saying, really, you've got this policy, but then you're going to apply it to the, like, the letter of the law really yeah. strictly. That sort of exactly negates the word flexibility. Sorry, carry on, please. Um, offer confidential support. And I think this is really important because when you think about it, It comes down to the person's line manager to have Mm. that conversation with them. But actually, who's the last person you would want to speak to when you're having some kind of Mm. weakness or vulnerability at home? Yeah. Your line manager. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it depends. I guess it depends. It's an individual thing, I guess. But the line manager is intrinsically linked to your performance and your progression in the company, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always potentially going to be that fear there. Mm. So I think offering confidential support, so people who are not linked to your organisation at all in mm. the workplace, 
is great because then someone can, if they're just having an off day, they can just go and have a cry, mm. get it off their chest and get that support. And that could be something like an employee assistance program. Yeah. yeah. And develop carer networks. So these can really help employees access peer support and also managers access support because a manager going, managing someone who's caring for someone with dementia might be a new experience for them mm. and they might not really know what to do. So by having these carer networks, I think it just makes sense. And a few companies have actually implemented these and they've been really successful and shown that the productivity of working carers has gone up and the amount of stress and sick leave they've had to take has gone down. And that for me, I think the more people are talking about their caring responsibility, whether it's for dementia or something else, for the old people or young people, yeah, it normalises this. We're all human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the last one, which is probably the most important one, is adopt a flexible approach, which I know is really difficult, for, especially for big corporations. However, recognising you know, each employee and situation they're in, whether that's a caring situation or not, it is unique. And you need to try, if you want to get the best out of your employee, you need to try and meet the needs of them as an individual. So as I said, forcing someone to open up about what's going on for them at home when they may may not have got their heads around mm. it and may not may have closed the door on it when they're at work mm. actually is probably the wrong thing to do but I think showing that you're there and you're willing to listen yeah. should they want to or need to talk as well as you know potentially offering confidential support and mm. um, giving them other networks of carers who understand what they're going through is the best way to make sure that employees are you know remain as happy and healthy as possible mm. during this time that actually is probably quite tricky for them and i guess there's also the time because as, as we've discussed dementia is a terminal condition and i guess it can last for a long time a long time yeah and there's that moment of loss as well there's, there's probably several moments of loss along that passage exactly it's a it's a process mm. and a journey it's not a one-off thing Mm. So it's navigating that whole journey yeah. um, with your employee. It's kind of in partnership with... Yeah, I think like so. Like a partnership between someone in the organisation and the individual yeah. to navigate their way through this. And exactly. things will change on a And that's the other thing is some, you know, yeah. some companies will offer things like, um, you know, you get five extra days of holiday a year. But if they have to be taken in advance, you know, when you're carrying someone with dementia, you might get a phone call oh, your husband's been found on the A419, mm. literally, and you have yeah. to leave work then, there and then. Yeah, It's not something that can be pre-planned. It's thinking about what does flexible mean, mm. actually. Yeah. Um, and I also think, we talked about this a lot in our Masters, but creating a culture of kind of um, safety and trust. Mm. So if you've got an employee, I think making them feel safe and also trusting them that they will get their work done mm. You know, whether they have to take a Wednesday afternoon off mm. or not, they're probably going to make up the hours if they respect you as an employer. So I think it's it's those two things are probably quite important yeah, as well. There's, there's lots of evidence showing that psychological safety and, and trust at work are, are fundamental to yeah. how we feel, but also fundamental to great teams. Exactly. Wow. And they're both, you know, it's a two-way thing, isn't it? Mm. If you trust your employee, in turn, they will probably work you know they, they might take the Wednesday afternoon off but then they might work all of Wednesday night or make it up the following yeah, week yeah they might find times when maybe they've done their caring responsibilities when they can catch up on work and, they, and they're not being paid and they're not 
not they're catching up when they're exhausted, but they might just think, oh, I can fit in half an hour here. Exactly. And it, again, it's remembering, like I said, that the work employees are doing during this time is actually really important to them. Mm. And actually having loads of time off for some people is the last thing they want. Yeah. Um, it's part of their identity. It's who they are. And it's how they continue to feel like a human being mm. at this time in their lives. It's really difficult to navigate when they're at home. So actually, you know, taking that away from them and giving them, you can have X time off, again, is sometimes not the right thing to do, yeah. although it may seem like it. I'd like to thank you, A, for coming on the People Soup podcast and B, for sharing this bit of research and giving it a higher profile. No problem. If we can share this, it's, it's part way towards educating yeah. people at work because this podcast is designed around psychology at work. Yeah. So if... Your top tip was different in this scenario. It was aimed at organisations and, and leaders about how to begin these conversations and how to support people. But I'm getting it's very complex, but it's also a very individual approach that is yeah. required and a, and a continuous kind of checking in. Thank you so much for bringing this to life in our conversation. I really appreciate that, Lauren. No problem. Thank you for having me. And can I do some um, shout-outs? Hell yes. This is a shout-out to my mum. Shout out to mum. What's your mum called? Hazel May. Hazel May? Yeah, because obviously she works for Dementia Carers Count, which I also want to do a big shout out to for helping me get my participants and sharing their research on dementia with me. But my mum also helped me a lot through my dissertation. She is patient and hardworking and an inspiration. So thank you for all her help. And my tutor, Paula who is just the guru of qual research. Wow. And she really helped me navigate that muddy pond. The muddy pond. Mm. Oh, big shout-outs to Hazel yeah. and Paul. I love that. And we'll put links to the Dementia... Carers Count. The Dementia Carers Count. We'll put a link to that on the show notes as well. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. P-Supers hope you enjoyed that. I found Lauren's research absolutely fascinating. It's essential that we talk about issues like this in the workplace and create cultures where people can feel safe and are treated with compassion and understanding as individuals. We love to hear from you. You're part of the PeopleSoup community, a P-Super if you like. And maybe by sharing our experiences as humans in the workplace, we can inspire each other. And I could even read them out in a future episode too, if you're willing. You can get in touch with us on email at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com, Instagram at people.soup, Twitter at peoplesouppod, and Facebook at peoplesouppod. Here's a request. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please download, rate, and review us. It helps others find the community and join us. Also, please do subscribe whatever platform you use. Let's see if we can reach more P-Supers. Maybe there are more people out there who might be interested. Thanks to you for listening and being part of the P-Super community. Your support is very much appreciated. Thanks again to Lauren and, of course, to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic. I'll sign off now and wish you all a great week. Bye for now. And I don't know about you, but even just getting up and going to work and coming home and going to bed, I find that a bit too much sometimes. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs>